Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome back to The Den. Today, we're joined by retired Chief Harold Medlock. Harold served over two decades at the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department in North Carolina before becoming the Chief of Fayetteville, North Carolina. He is known for building community trust through his unwavering commitment to partnerships while instilling high accountability across his staff. He carries those principles to agencies nationwide as an advisor for police leaders. Here, he is sharing how it all started. I am a country Southern boy as they come. I was raised on a what we call the Mill Hill. You know, in the 50s and 60s, you were either ran a mill or your, your family worked in a mill. And working in a mill was not that great. But I, I was raised on what was called a, a Mill Hill. And my dad was a, a Baptist minister. We lived in a mill-type house. And, you know, you you didn't realize exactly what you didn't have. It was almost like, looking back on it, it was almost like the the Our Gang or the Little Rascals kind of, you know, childhood where where you had, you know, gangs of kids, not gangs, but, you know, scads of kids playing ball one minute and building forts the other. And But anyway, my first five years of school, I I went actually to a four-room schoolhouse where there were two grades per room. And it it was a segregated school. And didn't have a black kid in our in our school. In each room, you had a teacher that one hour taught one grade, walked over to the other, gave a, an assignment, walked over and taught the other grade. And and really, that was my first five years of education. Integration came. We you know the school was closed and moved into an inter- integrated school, and which was great. You know, no problems because I was raised in you know on, on a mill hill. So you know. You pretty much relate to anybody above you, you know, at that point, certainly uh, people on, you know, African-American in our community. I just found it easy to relate. And the funny thing about this little town where I was raised, in the middle of the town was where everybody was considered wealthy or or better off. And then you crossed a set of tracks one side, and, and that's where I lived, on the Mill Hill. And you crossed the tracks on the other side of this downtown, and that was the African-American community. So I, I'm like, ah, you know, it's just a different color, but we're all, we're all kind of, you know, in this together. So, so anyway, my first, and this really has guided my life, my first interaction, and I have to go back to, uh, you know, to my faith. I was raised, you know, in a pretty uh, steadfast Christian home. And, and so I, we were at a prayer meeting one night when I was 12 years old. Both of these incidents happened when I was 12, but 
we were at some folks' house one night, and the guy's house that we were visiting, my dad, some other folks from the church, the guy's house, the guy who owned the house was, was the dispatcher for the Dallas, North Carolina Police Department. And so we're in in this meeting, and there's a free-for-all happening outside. So we all go out on the front porch of this old mill house. And across the street, there is a service station, and there's a guy that is beating his wife to within an inch of her life. I mean, he's got this woman, he's got her by the neck, and he's just pounding on her. And so the guy that owned the house ran back in, and he called the police chief, who was the only officer they had in the department. And so we heard the, the siren coming. The chief gets there. It was a little short guy. And this guy was a monster of a man. Of course, my, my 12-year-old memory is a little bit, you know, cloudy. But the chief tried to intervene. And so he begins to fight with this great big old guy. And the woman, who is down like a rag doll, gets off of the ground and jumps on the chief's back. And you're sitting there going, are you kidding me? And of course, the chief's white, the, the two individuals are white. And so the guy who, uh, whose house we're in runs back in. He calls the Gaston County Police. They were called the rural police back then. And in a couple of minutes, we hear the siren and cresting this hill. I'll never forget it. Was this Gaston County Police car and a big white officer and a big African-American officer get out of that car. And they proceed to wipe the parking lot with those two. <laughs> they got the chief un- untangled. And, and at the end of it, you know, cuffed them up, put them both in the car, and off they went. Well, the chief's all disheveled. And I'm standing on the porch looking, and I'm going, that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. Now, I don't know what it was about what I saw, but I've been told later that I was called to be a police officer that night. Right there, I knew it. At 12 years old, 1969, you know, what I was supposed to do with my life. Well, about that was in the summer. So the the following spring, we had this guy in the seventh grade who showed up at our junior high school. And he had been in Jackson Training School, which was sort of like central prison for youth offenders. Everybody was terrified. If you mess up, you go to Jackson Training School. So, so all the good kids, all the kids that were afraid of, you know, getting in bad trouble would would behave. Well, this kid, I'll never forget him again. He had this long, stringy blonde hair that kind of came down like like this, and he's probably bald now if he's still alive. But you know, it's one of those that the hair came down and and you know covered his eyes and all that. Well, he got out on the playground one afternoon actually during lunch. And so we're all standing, there's two, 300 kids standing there on this, on this tarmac. And for whatever reason, he gets into an altercation with another kid and he pulls a knife on this kid. So this is 1969, 1970, a principal comes out and, and he's, this kid squares off with the principal with his knife. Well, then in the meantime, somebody had called the Gastonia police department and you hear the sirens and two cars come screaming up, part the waters, the kids, these two officers get out with nightsticks. And of course, the kid's not going to drop his knife. So one of the officers hit his hand, knocked the knife out of his hand, and they proceed to beat the living dog snot out of that kid. And again, at the end of it, the kid's, he's done. You know, they, they reach up, cuff what's left of him, and then drag him to the car. And so in my mind, I'm sitting there going, okay, now I understand what I'm not supposed to do when I'm engaged with a police officer, okay? If they tell you to do something, you do it, you're not going to get beat. And so, you know, that kind of formed my behavior, both of those things. And so 
you know, during the 70s, during all the dope and all the stuff that was going on, I tried to stay away from that stuff because back then I knew what I wanted to do. And I also knew that if you applied and, and had, ever smoked, had ever smoked marijuana, you could not be a police officer. You could not be a police officer in North Carolina if you'd ever smoked marijuana. And so I never smoked weed. So my life's dream was accomplished at 21 years old. Charlotte police hired me and, and I, I went to the very worst area of Charlotte, Charlie three. And it was the worst housing complex. It was, uh, it was very, very low income, white and black. There were trailer parks, there were public housing. It, it just was a bad place, but it was a great place to learn to be a police officer. And I'd been, you know, in, in three years, I became a, within three years, was a, a training officer, was a, was on, became a SWAT team member, was injured several times, not seriously, but, you know, got a couple of concussions, a broken finger, you know, those kinds of things. And in a pretty bad head-on crash that a drunk crossed the, the center line and hit me. And so there were, I was involved in a lot of things, but I love that job. At about three years, believe it or not, I got out of the car one night after just a bad call over on West Boulevard in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I said, you know what, if I have to do this for 27 more years, I'll kill myself. And I quit. I walked away from my calling and went and did some, several other things for 10 years. And, and interestingly, the things that I did, I was successful, but I wasn't happy. You know, I was married, had a, my, my wife who's still, bless her heart, still with me. We were married during that time. And, and she knew me as a police officer before she, you know, she knew me when I wasn't. And, and so I, I was successful, but I wasn't happy. And in 1993, after being gone for, for 10 years, we were sitting on the couch one night and she said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I don't have any idea. She said, well, you need, you need to go back and be a police officer because if you don't, you're going to, you're going to die a bitter old man. And, and at that time I was 35 years old. I said, Hun, I can't go do that. I'm overweight. I'm out of shape. All the guys, gals I started with are all now of rank and, you know, now I'm going to have to start over. I have to go back through the academy. And she said, do what you want, but you're going to end up a, a bitter old man if you don't go back and do what you're supposed to do. So I, I reapplied. Luckily, they picked me back up and, and went through and started all over, went through the academy all over again. And my life experience of working with people, both in sales and in working with people in general while I was gone, really helped me relate better to, to people when I came back on the job. I, I had a different perspective. I'd always said that if I went back and uh, became a cop, I'd either be the worst cop that they that anybody could ever hire or I'd be the best. one. And so when I went back, you know, that was kind of in the, it was during the, uh, the AIDS epidemic. So there was a lot of, there was just a lot of bad talk about that, the way we had to the way we had to protect ourselves, but, but then there was also the anger that we had to deal with people who might be HIV or AIDS. And there was a lot of fear, the unknown. I still look at what's going on today as a lot of what we experienced in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s as, as cops. But it, it framed uh, how I started to, to deal with people. And, and the other good thing that happened about this time was community policing was really on the upswing. And, and so I read all I could, and, and I was called into a sergeant's office one day, and he said, uh, you're now a community police officer for this neighborhood. And I'm like, Sarge, I don't have any, 
what, what am I supposed to do? He said, there's a bicycle out there and go get a uniform. You can ride a bicycle. And that's really all I knew to do, except for reading Herman Goldstein's Problem-Oriented Policing and Fixing Broken Windows. And, and luckily, I ended up meeting both of those guys before they died but and having a great conversations with Kelly and Goldstein. But anyway, being on that bicycle allowed me to interact with people that I'm, in a way that I never was able to interact with them in a, in a patrol car. And, and so I really learned how to, to engage with folks. I ended up being promoted to sergeant. They sent me back to a, a bad district to, to be the community policing sergeant. We didn't know anything else to do, so we got the short horn to buy a gas grill that you pull one of these gigantic cookers that you call uh, pull on a trailer hitch behind a vehicle. And we pulled that thing from neighborhood to neighborhood, cooking the worst hamburgers and hot dogs you've ever seen. But but it was so cool because because we were in shorts and we were in pullover shirts, still wearing the gun and all that, still had badge and all that on. But people reacted to us differently. You know, when you're feeding somebody, when you're when you're feeding them hot dog or a hot dog or a hamburger, or if you're helping them fix a house and you're cooking food for them, we still did police work, but but it just it just allowed me to see people as they are. And that is, we want to be a part of you. You know, you just need to give us an opportunity. So, so that really kind of led me through from the early nineties, mid nineties to really where I am today. I think we have to continue to help departments reform. And if we don't do it, if they don't do it, if the leadership doesn't do it, the department doesn't do it, someone's going to do it for them. And we know how bad that always turns out when you get politicians involved in, and we're seeing it now in reforming, supposedly reforming police departments. So I think that's really what drives me. That's why, why I'm still in the game. I try to help departments and try to you know, bring some level of community engagement back to this whole thing. Ten years ago, oh my goodness, I can't believe it's been that long, but, but I was running the... Uh, security, head of security for the uh, for CMPD for the Democratic National Convention. And, and this guy, this crazy guy I was working for named Rodney Monroe called me in his office one day and he said, hey, uh, we got a $50 million grant for the security for, uh, for the uh, convention, but the first 100000 of it goes to a company called CNA who are going to come in and look over your shoulder and evaluate your planning process and then evaluate how everything you know, ran during the uh, the day and or during the days. And I said, I said to Rodney then, I said, I don't need no stinking government person coming in looking over my shoulder. And and who are they to take a hundred thousand dollars out of my grant? You know, I'd, I'd already owned that. Well, over the months that he and and a team were in and out, but uh, you know, during phone calls and conversations, but but especially during his time there in Charlotte. It was really kind of fun to watch our his and my relationship build and and really then to talk to for me to learn from his experience on you know things I need to be thinking about as it relates to the community and and so his advice over those months, even though it was not part of his job to kind of help me think through some of that, really helped us have one of the most successful conventions that's been held since 1969, the Chicago riot uh, uh, convention. But, but you know, it's funny, by the time the, the, uh, the convention started, Steve and the team were in town, and we had built a, a $3 million command center that had everybody that you could ever imagine sitting in all of those seats. 
but we didn't have enough room for, for Steve and the team. So we set up for our, our evaluation team a couple of tables in the back of the uh, command center, and that's where they worked from. They, they had full access to all the conversations, to the reactions, to the, uh, the orders given. But out of that, you know, out of that, those seven days that, uh, of the three-day convention that we, uh, we were operational, uh, formed a fast, a fast friendship and, and relationship. And, and I still, you know, every time I see Steve, I think back to, you know, to those times where that's where our relationship started. And, and it started, as most people would think about, being polar opposites. You know, he's here to evaluate, you know, what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm going to be careful not to, you know, give away too much. But at the end of it, they evaluated us fairly. I think we got a very fair evaluation. I don't think they pulled any punches because of our relationship. But that's the whole point, I think, of everything that, that we should be doing, which is in this business, which is building and maintaining relationships, positive relationships. When I was gone from policing, uh, one of the things that I was really uh, involved in, and, and still am, uh, going to get, get on a motorcycle and go up to the mountains tomorrow, but was off-road motorcycle riding. And, and so, you know, I've, I've had people say, well, you don't know what it feels like to have a cop point a gun at you. So, so one Saturday, a group of us go up to the North Carolina mountains, and, and we're going to ride dirt trails. Well, what we didn't realize is that we were in a national forest, which requires all the lights and all the, you know, the, the, all the registration. We didn't have any of that. So we meet up with these three yahoos from up there. And they said, hey, we'll show you around. So we're following three guys that we have no idea who, who they are, but they know the trails. And, and so we come out on a dirt road, and here comes a, a sheriff's deputy car down this dirt, this gravel road, and he holds his hand up. Well, the first three of them bring their bikes up on the back wheel, and they take off. Well, the sheriff's deputy turns around, and the chase is on. Well, I've got like eight guys behind me, and now we're all from Charlotte. And they said, well, what are we going to do? I said, I can tell you what I'm going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> but I'm gonna follow that dust trail, and I'm gonna turn myself in. I don't know. I don't know where we are, and I'm not getting into this. And you know, I I haven't been a cop, so I get it. So so we're following the dust trail, and of course, the three guys they hit a trail and left the the sheriff's deputy on the dirt road. So we come around a corner, and here's this this sheriff's car, this uh, deputy's car parked across the road. And that dude has a six-inch barrel, three fifty-seven pointed right at us. Now listen, that's a, it, it, the worst he had was a traffic offense. But this guy has drawn down on us, and so we came to a stop. And he said, "All of you are under arrest. You're all going to jail." Well, I'm in my you know my late twenties, early thirties at that point, and I said, "Officer, can I just can I just take my helmet off?" And so. He, he said, yeah, you, and, and then the guy next to me is going, you can't do that. I'm like, you shut up. I told my partner, I said, you shut up. I'll, I've got this. So I took the helmet off, and he saw that I was a little bit older guy. And, of course, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I think he saw I was an older white guy. And so, you know, he, he relaxed a little bit. I said, sir, you can take me to jail. Please just don't call my wife. And you know what? He looked at me, and he started laughing, and he holstered up. And, and, you know, it was, it was that, that de-escalation that I took on. And, and a couple of guys in the group were pissed because they wanted to make a complaint on this guy. Was it turns out 
he led us back to where we had parked our vehicles. I told him, I said, if you'll let me get back, get my bike on the trailer, I will go back to Charlotte. I will never come back here. I promise you. And he did. I mean, but the point is, you know, when, when I stood, especially in Fayetteville, when I stood in front of community groups and people would say, well, you don't know what it feels like to have a police officer point a gun at you. Well, actually I do. And I didn't know what he was thinking. I knew he was pissed when we came around that corner. And he wanted some retribution for those three yahoos that got away. And his first inclination was, there's eight guys that are going to go to jail today. Just because these three guys, I would have stopped anyway. If he put his hand up, I'd already stopped. I'd already stopped, but the chase was on. He'd forgotten about us, and he took off after them. So I've been on both sides of the coin, but it it was very helpful for me to know how to treat him both with, with respect and, and to let him know that we weren't a threat. We were just a bunch of idiots from Charlotte that wanted to go home. We just didn't want to go to jail. So you have these experiences. And again, I think it helps to frame who I am today. And so I'm more sensitive about, you know, me or somebody else pulling a gun on, you know, drawing down on somebody to, to tell them to stop when all they've done is either well, if they run, they run, you know, but at the end of the day, what are you trying to accomplish? And I think that's what we have to really think about. And then just really to teach our cops how to talk to people. And and we're, we've missed that. You have to engage with the officers. You have to talk about the direction. You have to talk about, you know, what this means. And then really what in Washington state's case, you know, what it looks like in the rest of the country. But you have to deal with the emotion and the anger. And you have to do that in person. You can't do it by policy. You can't do it, you know, by edict or or saying this is what we're going to do without dealing with the emotion and the anger. And once you get past that, once you let those officers express that freely but respectfully, then you start to build that, okay, now we understand where we are. Now how do we operate and still provide safety to the community and also something that, that you can enjoy as a cop. And so, you know, dealing with with that and spending that time, I think, for a leader, and, and that's really what it comes down to is leadership and being willing to stand in front of people and and accept that or take it and then use those comments to 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 build on it. It's this thing of, well, you know, I can't be the police anymore. Well actually you can. You just have to be smarter at being the police. We've gotten lazy as, you know, as a profession. And so now we have to find ways to do it smarter and and maintain the safety in our community. So now how do we go about doing that? And if you then if you engage the cops in it, your command staff, certainly. But if you engage the cops in it, there's some really smart people that will come up with some really great ideas about how they can do the work and do it while respecting people's rights. And again, engaging the community, but really doing it more effectively with lower numbers of uses of force and and deadly uses of force and and injuries to the community and and officers. uh, Complaints. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There, you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, 
on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.